Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you are well. I'm excited to be here. It's nice to come um, to 33. It's great to be here. And um, our church is having um, our church picnic today out of all the, all the days of the year to go outside. I guess we got this one. So this is our church picnic. I got a question. Um, how many people here would consider themselves to have a heritage of being part of the Mennonites? Anybody here a Mennonite, you would say? All right. How many of those people like Mennonite jokes? Okay, a few hands go down. Okay, I'm in trouble a little bit. Um, so today, I, we're, think, we're talking about God Speaks um, and the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, minor prophets. And I, today I want to b- draw a bit, of a, a bit of a tie between the Mennonites um, and the prophets and maybe the Israelites a little bit and, and, and ultimately to us. Um, so last week I talked at um, my church a little bit about this and, and I sent out an email with the Mennonite joke thinking I'd be pretty funny. So on the subject line I put the joke and then on the body of the email I put the punchline. Now the problem was when I sent out the, the, the email the subject line didn't change it stayed saying, there's beauty in everything. And I was like, oh, that's disappointing. Because the punchline was in the body of the, of, of the text. And the punchline was this. It was menopause. And I thought, oh no, a whole bunch of people just got an email that says menopause. There's beauty in everything, menopause. So I was a little bit in trouble at that point, And I got a little scared. Uh, so I had to quickly resend it out with, with the joke. And the, and, and the joke actually was this. What do you call a Mennonite coffee break? Menopause. So I thought that was a cute joke, funny joke. I like that one. I did, I did, there, was a, there was quite a few inappropriate ones, but I found another one that's kind of funny. Is how did the copper wire get invented? Two Mennonites found a penny, is what is, is how. Anyways. So I, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm a bit new to this uh, Mennonite world. Um, I love it, though. And if you're, if you're new here or you don't know, Willow Park is part of a tradition of, of Mennonites. It's a fantastic tradition, and I'm excited to be here, and I want to encourage that. And I'm excited to be a part of that tradition. Um, my last name is Pilgrim. It is not a Mennonite last name, if you can tell. And uh, so I'm just learning all this as I go. Um, so today I wanted to call this sermon, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, um, I think this thing's going to work, Salt, and I'm going to call it Salty Mennonites. That's the title of today's sermon is Salty Mennonites, and I hope you're going to go along with me on this one. And I want you to open up your Bibles this morning to um, Matthew 5, whoops, there it goes, there's that thing gone, uh, Matthew 5, as well as Amos 5. We're going to go into both of them, so if you can kind of find one or the other, um, I have Amos 5 on the slides, and Matthew 5 I do not, um, so pick your poison, maybe go to Matthew 5, we'll kind of spend more time there. Matthew 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp and put, a, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this verse. Thank you for your sermon. Jesus, thank you for clarifying your scriptures and coming and, and Holy Spirit living in us to help interpret and help understand what's going on. Father, I pray as we go today, we would, as we go through this today, we would understand a little bit more what it means to be the salt of the earth, to seek justice and to seek righteousness as we do this. Thank you for the gift that you've given us in your son, Jesus, our salvation, and creating us in your image, God, in your name. Amen. Amen. So, the Old Testament is full of amazing stories, and these minor prophets we've been going through have been absolutely encouraging to me. You see the heart of God come out. And when I first went into this series, I was, I was kind of thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up finding just a whole bunch of, a b- bunch of sin, God calling back from sin, and then putting back into, you know, into, into good ways again. And, and I thought it was just going to be a bunch of back and forth, and it was. But really what came out to me is this idea that God's heart is for justice. God's heart isn't in our religious acts if it doesn't correspond with righteousness and justice. And today I want to explain the words righteousness and justice a little bit and see how that in turn affects our life. So we're going to read it now Amos 5. I'm going to jump back there quickly. You can get there or you can go on here. Um, I got this TV here. I should read this. Oh, is that 21? We want to go 21 to 24. I hate... I despise your religious festivals, as we're all sitting in church. Amen. Your assemblies that are are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. This idea that this, there's a stench that is the religious ceremonies is not because God doesn't want us to meet in church. Does that not, Jesus made church because he wants us to be here. But what happens if we forget what righteousness and justice is, everything else is absolutely meaningless. Everything else that we do, everything else that we participate in is meaningless if we don't seek righteousness and justice. And through the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, and through the whole Bible, you cannot step through the Bible without realizing that justice is key and righteousness is key. There's a couple words here. I'm going to look at the Hebrew for them. First, we're going to look at righteousness. Sedekah. Sedekah. There's lots of different ways you can kind of spell these words. But righteousness is sedekah. And we're going to watch a video in a second that will explain this more. So fall asleep for a second, it's fine. Um, Sedekah is a relationship term and a right relationship. So you look at the Beatitudes and it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be made righteous, or, or whatever it says. But if we look at that word righteousness, we think so ourselves sometimes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be a really good person. Because then they'll be really good. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be really spiritual, but they'll be really spiritual. But righteousness is a relationship term. And in the Old Testament, righteousness and justice are often put together. And when you're looking at righteousness, it means right relationship most of the time with other people. It's actually not even talking, even in the Greek, it's not talking about necessarily only a right relationship with God. You know the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's one breath. That's one word. You cannot have righteousness, right relationship with God without having right relationship with people around you. You cannot have a right relationship with God without loving your neighbor as yourself. God created us all in His image, and we forget that. I forget that. We come from different demographics. We come from different places. We come from gated communities. We, we forget at times that there are the poor among us, that there are the widows among us, that there are the immigrants among us, that the orphans are among us. We forget that there is this group of people that need more, and this righteousness is right relationship with them. The second word is justice, and this is what we're really going to be looking at is mishpat. And a mishpat is action taken to correct social injustice. When you uphold mishpat, you're upholding righteousness. You're upholding tzedakah. Mishpat is this idea of justice, not in a retributive sense. So there's 400 uses of the word justice in the Old Testament. Nine times out of ten, justice is used for leveling the playing field. It is used for bringing justice of restoration, not retributive. So if you steal $5 from me, there will be justice to be paid for that $5 until I get my $5 back. That is one time out of ten the word justice is used is for retributive justice. Restorative justice is the other times. So take a look at this. You have the, the Levites. And the Levites were the one tribe of Israel that didn't have land and couldn't make an income. And so the other 11 tribes had to pay a tithe. But what do you think that word tithe is in Deuteronomy 18? Mishpat. That doesn't seem like justice to me. That doesn't seem like that the, the tithe is a justice and it's a retributive justice. It's a restorative justice because the Levites had nothing and the justice came in and the, and the equaling of the Levites came in for the other people. So a tithe is actually a restorative to restore people on the same level. And then you also have this idea when you were a farmer and you had an olive tree. We have, we have, we have probably some... Um, some peach tree orchard people here. I'm sure that's what happens in Kelowna. I'm also new to Kelowna. Um, I'm also a new man and a new Colonian, whatever you call us. And, um, and, and with the olive trees, the, um, the, the owners of the olive trees in, in the Torah, the law, that you could go in and you could, you could whack those trees once and you could bring down all the ripe olives, but that was it. Then you had a, a mishpat for the poor and the vulnerable, and they came along after the, the rest of the olives were made so you couldn't, you couldn't earn two incomes off of your tree. The one time all the ripe ones fell, that was for you, the owner. The second time, the, the poor and the widows, they came and they had that mishpat. They had that retributive, they had the restorative. They had the restoration so they could gather. So everything in the Old Testament was made to put people on an equal playing field. And our society has been making us one group higher and the other group lower. So let's go to watch a video and it'll explain way better than I did. I probably just went on for too long about nothing. So have a listen, have a watch, and then we'll carry on. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. 
But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. 
And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen, yeah. They say it much better than I do, and I just really enjoy that video, and I enjoy the life that is, is, is what we're supposed to be living as New Testament Christians. And this idea that this is a, is a history that we come from as Mennonites, and now I'm going to be using the word we come from as Mennonites because I've been here a year and a half, and I'm a we now. I am a Mennonite, and I love it. Um, the thing is, is that, is that a guy named Menno Simons came in to this world. If you don't know the history of it, I'm going to give a really patchy one, and, uh, and, and you guys can come tell me I'm wrong after. That's fine. Um, I've got to go back. That's not where we want to go yet. Um, so back a long time ago, around the 1520s, the Anabaptists started, um, started around 1520. And the Anabaptists are where we come from. The Anabaptists were people that really believed in um, believer baptism, and uh, as they believed in believer baptism, um, they would be persecuted because the Catholic Church and the Lutherans around that time still believed in infant baptism, they still do, and that was against the law and punishable by death. So the Anabaptists had believed something, and they believed something so um, strongly that they were willing to die for it. Around 1524, Menno uh, was ordained as a Catholic priest. Um, and about 1524, and he struggled to believe some of the things that the Catholics believe, the, the transubstantiation. If you don't know what transubstantiation is, is when you take communion and you take uh, the bread, it turns into the body of Christ in, inside of you, and the, and, the, and the wine turns into the, to the blood of Christ. And he struggled with this. And the thing with Menno was, is that his whole training and his whole life upbringing as a Catholic, he had never opened the Bible, he preached all the time, but he never used the Bible. Very interesting. And he thought, I don't want to open the Bible because I feel like it's going to challenge some of my beliefs. Very interesting. That's, that's, the, that's the, the base of our, of our uh, group of Mennonites. No. So he thought, ah. one day he decided, I'm going to open it up. Random thought. I'm going to open up the Bible. And he starts to read through and he realizes, hey, 
I don't really believe in this transubstantiation, and I don't really believe that we should be having infant baptism, but I think we should be baptizing as believers, as adults. And so he believed this, but he believed it in his heart because at the time, uh, living as a Catholic priest, you had a fairly comfortable life. He says, To my shame, I had much love for the comforts and wealth that come with ministry, as I very well know the comforts and, and, the, and the luxuries that come with being in ministry. But he had, to that, to his shame, he decided, but he opened the Bible and he realized that it said something different, but he kept it hidden for nine years. And then, if you've heard of the Munster Revolution, anybody heard of the Munster Revolution before? So the Munster Revolution was where the Anabaptists had taken over Munster, Germany, and they were going to make, this is going to be our place. Everyone here is going to believe um, the Anabaptist way of believing, and we're going to have our own safe place. But then the Catholics came, and the Lutherans came, and, and the Anabaptists who were eventually, we, who were for the most part pacifists, were not at this moment. And they, there was a siege, and there was knives, and there was blood everywhere. It was a very bad time in the history in, in that time. And so it's a bit of a dark time, and, and, and Anabaptists and Mennonites kind of separate themselves from that time, but it happened. And Menno said, if there are people willing to kill and die for what they believe, I can step aside from my comforts of my nice house and at least live for what I believe out loud, and maybe not kill, because we know that the Bible, and we know how Jesus lives, and we know how Jesus is. He says not to kill and to love your enemy, so I'm going to live for that, and I'm going to be willing to die for that, but I'm not going to raise my sword against that. So that's where the Mennonites started happening. In Menno, we became Mennonites, we understand. And then just shortly after that, our friend Dirk Willems. Anybody heard of Dirk Willems before? Yay, Curtis, there you go. Um, this is Dirk Willems, and i got a little story to tell you. Late in the winter of 1569, Dirk Willems of Holland was discovered as an Anabaptist, and a thief catcher came to arrest him at the village of Aspirin. Running for his life, Dirk came to the body of water, still coated with ice. After making his way across the, in great peril, he realized the pursuer of him had fallen through the ice into the freezing water. Dirk Willems was running for his life because he knew he was going to be taken to the stake and his captor had fallen through the ice. Knowing that he was created in God's image and knowing that his captor was created in God's image, he turned around, went back, and rescued his captor. His captor wanted to let him free, but then you can see in the back of the picture, the other group of soldiers came and said, you have a duty to arrest Dirk, and Dirk was arrested. And... Dirk was sentenced to execution by fire. On the day of his execution, a strong east wind blew the flames away from his upper body so that death was long delayed. The same wind carried his voice to the next town where people heard him cry more than 70 times, Oh, my Lord, my God. The judge was present, finally filled with sorrow and regret, wheeling his horse around saw, so he saw no more. He ordered the executioner, dispatch of the man with a quick death. The idea of Mennonites and Anabaptists come from this idea that everyone is created equal. Even to the point of death of Dirk Willems, knowing that he would face death if he saved his captor, he went back and he saved him knowing that he would then die. This is the foundation of Mennonite, of our Mennonite faith, and our Christian faith, and our Mennonite belief. It's a beautiful thing and I'm excited to share. So Menno has a few Ideas. Menno is our founder, and, and it's fantastic. And whoever boasts, he says, whoever boasts that he is a Christian, the same must walk as Christ walked. 
If we boast that we're a Christian, we need to look at the life of Christ and walk as he walked. This is a new idea back then. This is not a new idea to us. We know we need to walk like Jesus and live like Jesus and die like Jesus and, and surrender our lives. And, but to him, that was a new idea. We must walk as Christ walked. For true evangelical faith cannot lie dormant, but manifests itself in all righteousness and works of love. Being here today reminds me that we need to work and live in works of love. Surrendering ourselves and giving ourselves and loving our enemies as ourselves. This is a beautiful challenge and this is a beautiful tradition that we come from. And the tradition doesn't come from man, it comes from Christ, it comes from God. True evangelical faith clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, consoles the afflicted, returns good for evil, serves those that injure it, pray for those that persecute it. True evangelical faith clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, consoles the afflicted, returns good for evil, serves those that injure it, prays for those that persecute it. The salt. This is what the salt is. Our foundation and our beginnings and our beginnings in Christ is the salt that brings us. So that brings us to our salt. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In 1835, Mennonites were doing really well. 1835, a missionary named David Shatter, who visited the Russian Mennonite colonies, wrote back to his family about the spiritual decay that had taken place in a group of Mennonites the socioeconomic discrimination that they had, the greed that they had, the lust ran rampant, weddings that were ungodly, ceremonies that were apart from God. They had started off with such beautiful intentions and it had turned into something difficult. We know that there are some uh, pretty famous last names that belong to Mennonites. Sawatsky, Friesen. I don't know any other ones, to be honest with you. Anybody else got a last name? Enns, Reimer, there they go, Mennonite. Ween, Clausen, oh, this is good, lots of them. You guys are good. You guys know that you are Mennonite. And this is fantastic. In the video, we saw that, that the Jewish people had started from Abraham. And then a whole bunch of nations came out and went this way. What the Mennonites did is they had a belief and had an understanding of what Menno taught. And it took a whole bunch of nations and brought it down to one nation. And as I've kind of gone to conferences and I've kind of got to meet Mennonites and, and it's been very exciting through my whole life, I would say, hey, welcome. My name's Jordan. Or I would say to somebody at a, wherever I am, I'd say, uh, what's your name, blah, blah, blah. And I say, I don't know why. I says, are you a Christian? And they say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Mennonite. And people start to identify more as a Mennonite than a Christian. And this is not people here, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying the Mennonite culture is so proud, and it should be proud in many ways about who they are, but we, what happened in the 1800s, it forgot the radical foundations that it had in Christ and started to believe that it was the chosen generation. It became a, a, a mix of generations all boiled down into one. And that's why there's so many famous last names and, and we come from a culture and it's beautiful. But at the same time, we can get distracted by that. So he wrote back to his family and said, said this. He said, this is a church that has lost its saltiness. The Mennonite church is a church that has lost its saltiness. If someone came up to me and said, Jordan, you have lost what has made you different as a Christian, I'd be crushed. 
If someone came up to me and said, Jordan, there's nothing different about you anymore, I would be crushed. As we walk around, we know, we say, we have these stories of what are you, what's different about you? What's exciting about you? If there's nothing different about us, then we have nothing to offer. And this is what Christ is talking about. We're the salt of the earth. I was listening to a, uh, a Mike Krause, who is a Mennonite as well. And uh, he's from Southridge Community Church. He talked about the salt of the earth. And he says lots of different scholars use different reasons for the salt. There's spiritual vitality because salt was used for sacrifice. Salt is used as a relational glue that holds the world together because salt was used to ratify covenants of the ancient world. Salt is a purifying agent because if you rub salt in a wound... It purifies it. So that's what he's talking about. It's talking about purity. Or maybe it's talking about preservative for a decaying culture. Salt is a preservation. If you have no salt, you have no preservation of your culture. Or it's the flavoring of the otherwise bland world. Salt was used for everything in the ancient world. It was used for lamps to burn brighter. It was used for ovens to burn hotter. It was everything an invaluable resource. Salt is an invaluable resource. Soldiers were paid in it. It was like the pocket knife of the ancient world. The Jewish wisdom writers would say it is essential. The essentials for life include fire, water, air, and salt. Salt is essential. We are the salt. We are essential to this world. Roman philosopher says you cannot have civilization without salt. Two most useful items are salt and sunshine. Homer said it was the substance of the gods. I think what Jesus is saying is that you are the salt of the earth and the most useful tool the world has. You, it talks about, it doesn't talk about you as a nation, as a government, as a society, as a, as a, as a program. When it says you, it's talking about you. When it says, talk, says you are the salt of the earth, it's talking about me. We, as individuals and as a church, are the salt of the earth, and we are the difference that the world needs. This world is really in a decline right now. It's been a, de- well, been a decline since really we've been alive. <laughs> but it's a, this world is full of sin. This world is full of hardships. And this world is full of ugliness. And it needs salt. Just before that, in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn mean the people that connect with someone when they're sad. The world needs people to have empathy. The world needs people to have love. Blessed are the meek, those that don't put themselves over to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relationship. Blessed are the merciful. How many people agree that our world needs more mercy? How many people, you open up something, you open up a a chat thing on on Facebook and you see an argument, we need more mercy in that situation. We need more love in that situation. There needs to be more salt in that situation. Blessed are the pure in heart. The purity of our world has gone down the drain. If we as a church and a you and me as individuals lose our salt, we've lost our purity. Who is going to be pure out there if it's not the church? Who is going to be pure in this world if it isn't people that follow and claim to live a life after Christ? I need to not lose my saltiness. Every time my character slips, I lose a bit of my saltiness. Blessed are the peacemakers. How beautiful is our history as Mennonites knowing that it is so much about peace and laying down our lives for what we believe in. How important is it that we are peacemakers 
If this church, if you as an individual, if me as an individual is not a peacemaker, who is going to be the peacemaker? If we pick up arms, how is that going to work? And blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed is Stephen in Acts. What happens if he picked up a rock and fought for his life? It would just, the beauty of that moment, horrible moment, where Stephen is persecuted. But he says, Jesus, my life is not my own. This world is not the end. We can live a life that is salty. And we can live a life that is beautiful and surrender to him. If you're a chemist you're, thinking, chemist, you're thinking to yourself, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Just so you know, Jordan, you've kind of like lost us all there. You can't lose its saltiness. Salt is either salt or it's not salt. It's always going to be salt. You can't lose its saltiness. Well, back in the day, the Mediterranean Sea, that was where you got the pure salt from. It was beautiful. You, know, you, you, you evaporated off the, the sea, you get pure salt, and you can't lose that saltiness. But if you had the lesser of the salt, you went to the Dead Sea... And the, and the Dead Sea had a whole bunch of agents in it that some of it was salt, but other parts of it were other agents. And so if you would store the salt in the side of your house and the rains came, the salt would be washed away. And it would be useful for nothing but being thrown onto the, onto the ground and trampled on. How, can you imagine how difficult it is to put that salt back into that, into that pile? It's like when the church loses its character... And many times over the history of this world, the church has lost its character, lost its good name, lost its integrity. How difficult is it to put the salt back in? So our fight, and the enemy is fighting constantly, even while I was sitting down here, the enemy is fighting against me, trying for me to lose my integrity, trying for the church to lose its integrity, trying for us to lose our purity all the time. And once we lose that, once we lose that good, that good name that the church has, It's impossible to get it back. So I want to encourage us. We need to remain salty. So think about this. At the beginning, we talk about mishpat and justice. The heart of God is that everyone is to be treated in God's image. The heart of the Old Testament, Meyer prophets, is that everyone is treated the same. The heart of the beginning is everyone's truly the same. Everyone is created in God's image and it's beautiful. The young and the old, the poor and the rich, everybody is made in Christ's image. And if I have slipped on that, I need to repent and say, God, I am not better than anyone else. You have died equally for me as you have for the person across the street. And then he changes. He changes his metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Christ is that light. And Christ's heart living in every single one of us is that light. When you're at your office this week, when there's something that comes up, when there's a tension that comes up, how do you respond? That's your light. How do you respond? Do you have that salt or have we lost that saltiness? How do I respond when my kids drive me crazy? Do I have that salt or do I lose my character? When you're alone and there's something and you have a choice of purity, do you lose your salt or do you maintain your salt? 
The church is being bombarded with temptation, trying to take away our leaders, trying to take away the strength in Christ, in our, in our testimonies. This week as you go to work or this week as you meet with your friends or when you're at home with your kids tonight or with your wife, your husband, your friends, just pray, God, help me to be a salty man at night. A good salty, not the salty that we think about when you say someone's salty. That beautiful salt, that beautiful idea. When you put salt on your meal today, if you're having those Mennonite sausages and pierogies or whatever Mennonites have, am I that salt that's going on there? We have that beautiful, this is, I've been, I honestly didn't know it existed until I came to this church. The MCC, is that what it's up there? Wow, what a beautiful thing. That's our history. If you come into this church, that is a fantastic piece of history to be a part of. This mission idea, the idea that the name of Jesus needs to be sent around the world with people who have integrity. God doesn't call fantastic communicators. I am a tribute to that. He calls people that are salty. He calls people that have integrity. And that's how you're going to win your offices. That's how you're going to win your friends. That's how you are going to love your enemies is with that salt of Christ. I'm going to call the worship team up and we're going to close with the song.